0: Yeah, that would have been, I think the trip that you guys came out was, that was February of 20. And yeah, that was... Yeah, that's when all you guys had the full full yard of equipment and all that. Yeah, full just, yard of equipment. It was, that was definitely different times for sure for the, for that area. And what was, what I always found very interesting, because I grew up in a town that was very ag and oil, you know, um, Baker, emphasis. Bakersfield. Yeah. Bakersfield, California. Yeah and um what i always noticed was you know you would see these fluctuations you know just naturally in the in the economy right as as oil prices would go up and down and but it wasn't quite to the degree that it is in midland yeah. where it's like literally the only thing that the majority of the folks that are out there for is for oil production and yeah. um when you get that you get roads that are halfway paved because they you Know the cities and municipalities are running out of money, and I mean, it's crazy. It is a really different area. One of my friends lives out there and has lived out, born and raised there. And, um, you know, he's seen a lot, but he did say this last one has probably been the most severe.
1: It's crazy. Well, I guess, yeah, Bakersfield Central Valley, it's primarily ag, yeah, primarily agriculture, yeah, and so that. I guess that diversifies things a little bit out there. It does, but
0: so Bakersfield is in Kern County, and Kern County is has one of the highest, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna botch the numbers here, um, but one of the highest producing
1: um, counties in the country as far as oil goes. Yeah, so they don't tell everybody that because it's California. Oh yeah, we believe in yeah we don't <laughs> sunshines and rainbows.
0: Yeah, we don't want any of that here. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Well, the people in Kern County try to tell other people that because. They're trying to shut everything down right now, yeah, but yeah. Uh, the rest of the state doesn't, you know, wants to completely
1: ignore that for sure. Did you see that they they just outlawed uh, gas powered chainsaws? I didn't see and, that. And like weed whackers by I, like, by twenty twenty four. I so you can't some, have a you can't have a steel chainsaw anymore in California. That's ridiculous. Isn't that crazy?
0: It is. It, it, it's insane. But that's the state of California. I I still have some residual PTSD from you know my time in California. So. Um, I have tried to tune out a lot of the news there, but yeah, it it is crazy. And we go back, you know, my wife's family still lives there. And so we've go back to visit and, um, it's just different. It's just, it's not the same. And I think being in Texas, it's just totally changed our perspective on a lot of different things.
1: Yeah. It's, it's just, it's going to be funny. You're going to see landscapers run around with electric chainsaws and then just like four different Honda generators on the back of their pickup truck charging batteries burning gasoline yeah so it's, I was, probably ju- it's probably worse for the environment <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, we're really making a difference here <laughs> none
0: uh, so much of what the state of California does makes zero sense yeah and I think that's the frustrating part you know coming from a very Kern County is a very conservative county um, and coming from that you know and going and going we kind of swapped really in, in moving to the Austin area, right? We went from a very conservative area in a very liberal state to a very liberal area in a very conservative state. And that dynamics, which has been, it's actually been very interesting. It's not what I expected to be yeah. honest. Um, but oh, you're, you're in Dripping Springs. So is it as progressive as city of Austin? It's definitely not as progressive. Yeah. It's definitely not as progressive, but we're, We're,
1: uh, we're trying to be. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. With everybody. I mean, you're not the only one that's moved from California to the Austin area.
0: Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, you hear a lot of native Texans are like, Hey, don't California, my Texas. Right. And what, this is such a double edged sword though. Right. Because the reason that this is all happening is you have companies like Tesla and Google and Facebook and Apple that are building these giant campuses in Austin. Mm -hmm. And you can't, um, you can't expect them to only hire Texans, right? Yeah. The majority of the people that are filling those buildings are transplants, right? Now, whether they're coming from Illinois or Seattle or, or somewhere in California, I mean, that, that that's who's filling those buildings. And so to expect them to vote exactly the way Texans vote, you know, I think is, um, is probably uh, ignorant. But well, at the same time, um, it is frustrating because they get to enjoy certain um, freedoms that you may not get in yeah. other states. Yeah. And then you're also voting to shut a bunch of other things off.
1: Well, it, it goes both ways, though. They talk a lot about that angle, which is annoying. But then it's also everybody that's been in Texas, they're greatly benefiting from that state blowing up. Everybody benefits when a, when a town grows. Most everybody. You, you have those old crusty guys that just want it to be the way it's always been. But every, life becomes a lot better for the whole state all these cities as a result of the growth. Absolutely. Everybody benefits. Yeah. That's, that's true. And Texas woof, it's really benefited
0: from it. It's funny because, you know, when we set out to start our own business, we looked heavily at Tennessee. And, um, one thing that as I was doing some market research that I saw was that they were kind of trying to do the same thing that Texas has done with enticing businesses to move with, you know, different tax incentives, et cetera. And, um, I thought it was interesting because in Texas, that's, it's been that way for so long. And it's just, that's kind of the fabric of the government there, mm-hmm. right, is low regulation and it's what's made it such a business-friendly state. So it's, it's interesting to see how other states try to do that as well. I think what shed a ton of light on it was when Amazon was, you know, pitched that they were going to go start, you know, building their new headquarters and they were trying to get, you know, whichever state that would uh, – you know, give them the most benefit. So I think that's what kind of piqued my interest in kind of, you know, exploring that. But it is interesting to see that. It's crazy
1: what states will do for these companies. Like Amazon, I mean, yeah, it's like who can, I mean, for lack of a better term, like jerk them off the most. They basically are just like, yeah, you just have whatever you want. Have whatever the hell you want. And what's funny is, Someone's gonna pay for that, right? Well, oh, it's the local people that pay for <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. Exactly. So and this company gets everything handed to them. Yes, they don't pay anything in taxes. Yeah, they go put all that back in their company, increase their stock price, all their shareholders. Cool. Yeah, but great you just job. get screwed locally, yep. and so it's it's really upsetting when that happens because the local the local area is really not benefiting from those companies coming. Yeah. So
0: Samsung is in the process of moving and inc- building a huge facility in the Taylor area, which is kind of like northeast austin um actually very northeast of austin um but the the incentives that the county and state or in the, the sorry the city and county are giving them i mean it's it's going to be some of the biggest even bigger than tesla and some of the ones that they offered to amazon so it'll be really interesting to see how it all shakes out but yeah i mean someone's paying for that and um and you're right, it's the locals and that's the, and it's, and it's honestly, it's the folks that are moving there because that's how they're mm-hmm. recuperating a lot of that, uh, <clears throat> you know, a lot of that um, lost revenue from, from them. it will be through property
1: taxes and increased sales tax and so on. Yeah. It's a, it's a wacky deal. It is. Um, you're in Texas, you worked for the family rental equipment business for quite a while. You, speaking of moving from California to Texas, you guys moved you guys had a heavy equipment rental company in California. You moved the whole business to Texas, correct? Yeah. So my
0: stepdad at the time in 2000, roughly, in tail end of 99, beginning of 2000, started a company called Golden Empire Equipment in um, in Kern County in Bakersfield. Um, very successful business through the housing boom and oil, et cetera, um, did really well there in 2014. Um, the, they kind of decided they wanted to branch out. Um, so my stepbrother moved out to Austin and launched heavy equipment rentals at Texas. And so they really started working for the contractors there, pulling equipment out of California. And then I think it was 17, I think it was seventeen. It was like, all right, we're done with California. We're gonna shut it down and move everything to Texas.
1: So, how many, how many pieces of equipment did you guys move? It was. It wasn't like a small business. You guys had a lot of no was, a lot of iron.
0: Yeah, it was roughly. I think at the time it was like roughly eighty to ninety machines. And uh, these are like heavy machines. Yeah, they're yeah three thirty six size excavators. Yeah, yeah, not yeah. You're not putting multiple on one piece of equipment. You're yeah. not loading them all
1: into one plane and rolling. No, no.
0: Yeah. so they they actually had. Um, they had a truck staged in California, one of the trucks staged in California, one of the trucks staged in Texas, and they would do meets and they would just swap trailers because there's the exact same truck, exact same trailers. So they would just swap trailers. Nice. And, uh, or I don't know if they swap trailers or if they unloaded and reloaded, whatever, but that's, that's what they would do to try to get the equipment back and forth. Um, But yeah, it was,
1: it was uh, quite a logistical feat, no doubt. So, and you guys were playing in two markets in Texas. You were playing in the, the growth of the Austin San Antonio area from a lot of residential, commercial, and then the oil market in Midland. Yep, exactly. And we, Odessa and that whole area.
0: Yeah. So we were headquartered out of Pflugerville, um, which is north of of Austin. And that um kind of served as, you know, that that was the main shop. That was, you know, the main facility for us. We had an office down in South Austin, Buda area. Um and yeah, that kind of, the idea was that that business or those locations would really service that, uh, I-35 corridor from say Waco to, you know, South of San Antonio. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really the, that was the area that we, that we tackled there. then we had a laydown yard in Midland and, um, and that was servicing all the way up to New Mexico and, um, the Delaware basin and, the Midland area, down to Fort Stockton and that area. So big
1: footprint in West Texas. And when we visited you guys for the first time, it's, I'd never been out there before. I'd driven through it and just driving through it. I remember first time I drove through West Texas, it was at night because we'd gone to the Carlsbad Caverns me and me and my friend, Kevin, and then we drove all the way through on our way to Dallas or now oh, we were staying in Sweetwater. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) We didn't make it to Dos. It's a Sweetwater. So we go from Carlsbad to Sweetwater, which is you go right through the heart of... Yeah. That's off I-20. ...Texas oil. And all you can see, there's nothing out there but flares. And so it's just flares as far as you can see these balls of fire out. But it's just pitch black otherwise. You can see the stars. It's beautiful. And just these balls of fire all the way out in this vast expanse of Texas land. And you're just like, what the hell is this place? But that's where it really happens in the oil and gas market. I mean, that's one of the hottest places in the United States yeah, for oil and gas. It is. Can you explain what do the contractors out there use the equipment for and why do they rent versus buy? So first question um,
0: a lot of contractors are utilizing the equipment for building building, drilling pads, access roads, um, different, doing the dirt work for facilities, whether that's like a, a, a tank yard or, or whatever mm-hmm. that might be, but yeah. different facilities. Um, and then they're also using for aggregate production because they'll put down, you know, uh, Caliche um, base roads, et cetera. So they would do that for that. Uh, mining frack sand, mm-hmm. all different types of uh, – basically everything you would see – in a traditional construction space is out there, right? And then in addition to that, you have contractors that are focused on infrastructure improvements for the general public because now all of a sudden the cities and the municipalities have money to spend, right? Mm -hmm. So you have that going on and you still have commercial and and residential too. Um, And then the second answer is a lot of contractors are renting because they know what's coming, right? They know that eventually the economy will turn down and then – at that point, they don't want to have this equipment on the books if uh, all of a sudden their work's dried up. They immediately
1: bring it back and you know, have you come pick it up, and then they're off.
0: Yeah. You know, off Sometimes there. they don't even tell you. They they, they call <laughs> you and they say, well, our low bed's at the gate. We need to unload a piece of equipment. Yeah,
1: Or I'm sure they'll just leave equipment out in the middle of nowhere too. Yeah, we we had that happen a couple of times with yeah. people abandoning equi- equipment. Because these, these contractors, they're not, a lot of them, they're not like, Long-standing, like we we're talking about all those California contractors. They've been around for a hundred plus years or whatever it is. These contractors, they kind of come and go a lot of times. There in are the, some bigger ones, but it's yeah. just boom or bust. Yeah, in the oil and gas industry,
0: you're absolutely right. And you, as a rental company, you really have to do your due diligence on these companies to make sure that they're going to hold up their end of the bargain and pay you mm-hmm. right, uh, because that that happens so frequently. Where exactly what you're saying, where you get a you get a a contractor who um, maybe he's got a, a crew of guys, right. That are building drilling pads and the rep with the producer loves that crew. And so they decide, Hey, let's go start our own business and we'll just get all this work from this rep. Right. Mm-hmm. And it just perpetuates that way. Right. So you, you have a lot of other things that go along with that and you end up with, um, you know, we always said like some of the guys are fly by night out there, right. Cause they're just, they're here one day and they're gone the next. And it's, it's kind of a, even with the workforce, it's a very, um, you know, for lack of a better phrase, like it's a gypsy lifestyle, really. Yeah. I mean, it's like oh, yeah. these guys are in, South, in North Dakota one day, <clears throat> they're in Midland the next, and maybe they're going to the Pennsylvania gas fields after that. I mean, they're going wherever they can make their money and, um, you know, maximize how much money they can make and then uh, pay for that platinum f four fifteen. That's lifted,
1: dude. It's <laughs> and then uh, it's nuts. Oh, it's, it's it is nuts. so crazy. The first time I flew into Midland, uh, again, it's like you're flying into this big city because of all these flares. As far as you can see, everybody on the plane is kind of drunk coming to work. They were just off for a week or two weeks. Everybody's going there to work. Definitely hungover. At least hungover. Yeah, at but least. I remember some somebody, of like somebody's <laughs> got. They're just they're just drunk going into Midland. You know, it's you get in at ten or eleven p.m. You get into the air and spaceport, and you're like, what the fuck is a spaceport? I'm in Midland, Texas. (laughs) You get into Midland, Texas. You wake up. You go to the gas station, and there's a line at every single pump with F-450 Platinums with big-ass welders on the back. And a kid that's 21 years old gets out of it. And, you know, I'm not one to talk because I can't grow facial learning, but it's like this little kid gets out of, and which is exactly what I do out of my <laughs> 250, gets out of this truck that's $150,000. You're like, where, where the hell am I? I remember we were out like near Pecos and it was like a McDonald's. The only place you could get breakfast. That place was bananas, absolutely nuts. And it was like four in the morning. Four in the morning, place is slammed, slammed. It's just crazy. It's a crazy world. It
0: really is. Um, And actually, we had breakfast one day at Sewell Ford, which the Sewell Ford dealership has like a really nice coffee shop there, right? And you drive onto that lot and you just see all these trucks and every single one of them is lifted. Oh, yeah. Every single one of them has, you know, big chrome wheels and and big tires
1: and the whole deal, right? well, you said but, like let's go to the Ford dealership for food. And I'm like, okay, I mean, okay, sure, we can go to the Ford dealership. And you show up; it's it's like a country club. they oh, have, yeah, like the like <laughs> polished
0: the, marble floors. Marble, I've never seen any like dealership gas, like that. Gas
1: lanterns. Yeah. There's like a row of you know Shelby Raptors sitting out front, yeah. and, which are very very expensive pickup trucks. Yeah. You might see one at a really nice Ford dealership, and they just have as many of them as you can. You're like, what? What the hell is this place?
0: Yeah, yeah. So it that's is. West Texas. It is. It's a wild place.
1: <laughs> it's a wild place. Uh, so you were, you worked for the family company. How many years? It was quite a while.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I basically worked around the business since the time that my stepdad started it, right? I was 14 at the time and I yeah. was washing equipment, did all that, went away to school, um, went to work for a couple contractors, studied construction management, did some internships with, Granite Construction in De Silva Gates, and um, a small contractor in San Luis Obispo, uh, John Madonna Construction.
1: John Madonna's is legendary. They are, part
0: of, yeah, part of the state, the the central coast. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of. Well, I mean, they got, they got the Madonna in, but
1: yeah, it's interesting. Say, they have all.
0: Yeah, it's interesting <laughs> that that whole area is kind of it, it was shaped by Alex Madonna and his family, mm-hmm. um, and they still own a ton of property there
1: yeah. to this day. Um, like all of, of, I have a picture out here with a, like an old school 980 loader. And every time I post on the internet, oh, that's, that's Madonna. There they are. You can't tell whose machine it is, but it's on Highway One. It's this beat to shit loader. Everybody knows that it's, it's either Madonna or out there, it's Pappich is the other big one. Yeah. And they, they kind of just do everything out there. Yeah. Papage is huge. And, uh, and they, they've grown substantially. Yeah. Papage has. Um, it's a weird,
0: weird part of the country though. It is. It's its own little world. It totally is. Yeah. And it was funny because it's only two hours from Bakersfield, but it, you're absolutely right. And it still had a lot of that. Um, even, I mean, I would, could make the argument even more so than Bakersfield. It's still that like kind of good old boy, mm-hmm. you know, area. Um, it was, it was a lot of fun going to school there. And, um, but anyway, so did that. Went to work for De Silva Gates. where you I go slow?
1: Did you go slow? Cal Poly Slow. Oh, yeah.
0: really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I freaking love San Luis Obispo. Yeah, it's it's not a bad place to be. No. Definitely not a bad place to be. No. Um, yeah, so did that. Um, I was on the four and a half year plan and, uh, and then went to work for De Silva Gates in the Bay Area and worked there for a couple of years and then moved back to Bakersfield. My wife and I had gotten engaged at the time and... Uh, Decided to move home and went to work for the family business, did that for a few years, and then kind of was just anxious to kind of chart my own path a little bit. So went to work actually in oil and gas, went to work for a company called uh, KSI, Small, um, and they're 2,500-employee, large mm-hmm. oil field service contractor. They actually work in Midland. Um, but mostly, their focus is California and North Dakota, um, and it mi- it might be different now. I, I'm not in touch with those guys as much uh, anymore. But I know they were expanding into Texas and New Mexico. Um, but yeah, did that, and then in 2017, some friends of ours owned a private security company, and um, they were starting a a um, form builder application software. And said, "Hey, can you come over here? We think your kind of your operational construction mindset would be really good to kind of help try to tailor this product too." Mm-hmm. Um, so we did that, and uh, that lasted a few years. And then got the call to see if I was interested in going to Texas. And um, my wife and I had been deciding between we were we were very close to actually taking a job um, with West, Western States Cat in Boise, Idaho. Um, and so we tossed that back and forth and ultimately decided we didn't want to, we kind of have always had this idea that we want to start our own business and we felt like that was not the right step. So, um, and then my family called and said, Hey, there's opportunity here. And I felt like it was a good compromise between like, Hey, here's, you know, risking everything you have. And, um, you know, and also the W2, right. It was kind of the balance between those two things, right. The, The steady paycheck, and not having to risk all your life savings on it.
1: Sure. Um,
0: but but now you're doing that. But now yeah. I'm risking all my life savings.
1: It is. You did say something interesting, though. Uh, construction, the skill set you get in the construction industry applies to a lot of different worlds. Yeah, couldn't so agree as, more. As far as, like, a place to start your career, I mean, even, even I, I always forget this. Like, while my dad was in college, he had to pay his way through college, and he worked in construction. And a lot of the lessons he applied in construction... Or learned in construction applied to his work in law, uh, the uh, the just the construction industry in general. There's so many good lessons, and if you learn how to actually do things and build things, that can apply to any other world. So yep. if you're like if you're a kid that it's kind of like the military too. You, you take these kids that are completely lost in life, have no idea what the hell they're doing. Sure, just go into the military, and then once you're in the military, you get the skill set that can apply really anywhere, I think construction's a really good place it's a really good place to build a career but it's also just a good place to start a career and figure your shit out even if you don't spend long forty years in the industry yeah you're gonna come out with it with a really good tangible skill set that can apply to software or it can apply to any other field yeah, I totally agree and I think the um
0: you know some of the classes that we take in the construction management coursework with job cost accounting and um, you know different things, the scheduling and so forth. It applies now. You know, project manager used to be referred to as someone in the construction field. Now there's project managers in all different types of fields, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. and the PMP certification doesn't only apply to construction project managers, right? So I think that shows you right there that the applicability that. Um, learning how to manage construction job sites um, whether that's the people or the the accounting side of it or the scheduling side of it you know the project control side um, it has applicability in other industries no doubt and Mm -hmm. I and I think it actually brings a more granular um, approach like an an, an, and a more granular analytic approach to how you look at things right because on on my job sites, when I was working for De Silva Gates, we were looking at every single cost code on that mm-hmm. on the uh, cost report that came out every Tuesday, right? And we would look at that and we'd be like, "Oh man, we need to figure out how do we how do we cut some? Can we do this with less people? Can we do it with different equipment? Can we get creative on our trucking? Is there you know yeah. you're looking at things from a very granular approach, and where business in general is kind of this you know bigger, fluffier vision, if you will." Um, and it doesn't really teach you to get in the weeds and figure those things out like construction does. And I don't, I didn't realize it at the time, right? I didn't realize it at the time, but, um, when I started working for the private security company and, and for the oil and gas contractor too, and you start looking at different things that we're doing and you start to say, Hey, can we stage a vehicle somewhere so that we don't have to pay someone to drive three hours, you know, maybe hire someone in that area, you know, can, you start to think about things differently and i think that's because of you know that uh, that more analytic approach that project controllers and you know project
1: engineers as you come up through the ranks you know you get totally and, and and the problems themselves they're they're quite complex and there's a lot outside of your control which is life in general i mean it maybe it rains maybe your 336 busts a hydraulic line you're like oh shoot what do we do today well maybe Two guys don't show up. Maybe your materials don't get there. There's so many different, a subcontractor is being an asshole and getting in your way one day. It's completely throwing your plan off. It's, you learn to just constantly adapt and accept the reality that there's so many conditions outside of your control and you just must change and adapt to whatever conditions you're dealt with on that given day, even that, that hour, because things change by the hour on a job site. And I think that's just such a valuable skill set to have anywhere. Yeah. Life in general, right? I
0: mean, we yeah. get, like you said, those curveballs get thrown no matter what you're doing. So if you can yeah. learn to adapt and overcome, yeah, I think that's a that's definitely a big piece of it.
1: Well, in our business, I'm starting to learn and actually we're gonna start prioritizing our hiring uh to start finding more people that are high in adaptability, as Rich Devinny calls it. And I think you know that's a common term, but He talks about hiring for core attributes rather than a resume. And adaptability is one that I'm starting to see is really, really important in our company because things change every single day and you must just roll with it. I mean, yesterday I had, we had a plan in the morning and then I got some information that completely throw off, threw off our plan, had a conversation came up with a whole different plan. And this is this is a big deal that's going on here. This isn't like this little, like what I was doing that day. This is a, a pretty big piece of our business. And then I have another conversation in the afternoon that throws the plan that we just came up with completely out the window again. And now I'm back at square one. Now I need to have another conversation. It's just, you're just bouncing around constantly. But that's the name of the game. And you're building a business. You're, you're doing stuff that's never been done before. And you just need to do okay, that was stupid. Now onto the next one. Now onto the next one. Now onto the next one. And there's people that are naturally good at just shifting around. And you can teach it a little bit, but if they're not naturally good at adapting, they're just going to have a bad, bad time. And and the change is only accelerating within our business right now. Yeah, and I think that adaptability piece is half of the
0: equation, right? Because once you adapt, now what, right? So you got to find people that are adaptable but at the same time they're willing to make the change yeah but now go figure out how that change is going to affect other things and mm-hmm. problem solve right yeah. be be uh be proactive and problem solve ahead of that yeah um, and i think if you find those two things yeah you're it might be the unicorn but yeah yep. it's uh that's a a huge
1: that's a huge piece of it for sure it's and i think it's a core piece of the industry just being adaptable that's yep. the name of the game is adaptability yeah it, i think
0: um you know, adaptable, I guess the the phrase that comes to my mind is like rolling with the punches, but I think it's more than that, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just rolling with the punches, it's overcoming those punches and figuring out a different game plan now. Yeah. Um. Hey, we got this new information, we are going to adapt, but we're going to adapt in a way that's still going to put us on top, right? And I think that's a big construction teaches you that, right? Because you don't get you don't get to just roll with the punches on a job site. Otherwise, you've rolled with the punches and now you're, you know, three months behind schedule and a yeah. million dollars over budget. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It, it, well, it's it's also training yourself to, to see the opportunity in whatever downsides come your way and whatever punches come your way. So even, even yesterday is a good example of it. To the untrained eye, would have been very bad news, but our response was okay. This actually plays to our advantage because now we need to be more resourceful. We can be craftier, and big picture, I think we're actually this is this is a huge win for us. Uh, and and it's like the uh, the Jocko mentality, like seventy five hard, where it's uh, like you've 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 done those outside workouts where it's just like pissing rain or it's snowing, snowing or Texas. whatever it is, <laughs> and you're just like, cool, good, great we're just going to go do it anyway and we're going to have fun while we do it. And you retrain yourself to just think in that screwed up way that actually serves you quite well. So when things are going wrong, when everything's not perfect, you're like, yep, this is good. Let's go have a good time. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, Yeah, I think. And it's funny because
0: everyone else doesn't view things that way. Right. It's not, that's not the norm. When I was, you know, putting on multiple layers to go walk while it was snowing in Texas and my neighbors were, you know, locked inside and I, it, you know, they all looked at me like I was crazy. Right. And maybe I was a little bit, but <laughs> I was sitting there thinking I'm going to enjoy this. Um, and we did so, or I did. Rather. Well, and,
1: and that's just, it's just a really small example of what you're doing now. I mean, to start a company is constant. Like you have to be fucking insane. You can't, like, there's just the level of risk and, shoot, it's just, it's, it's completely ridiculous. And with what you're doing, we're going to get it right now. It's really, really ridiculous, really, really ridiculous. And you can probably say the same thing about me, but you're starting a rental company from really the ground up. Yeah. And there's some big rental companies out there. Yeah. And we're,
0: you know, my family's business was all very, you know, it was a very, it was a, it was a niche business, right? Yeah. heavy equipment, um, you know, no, no small equipment whatsoever. And real, we're, we've got big, hairy, audacious goals. So I feel like the way we tackle the industry is on the general
1: rental side. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's why we're headed in this direction. So, so you, you left the family business, what, like a year and a half ago, year ago? Yeah, a little over a a year. Yeah, Yeah. it was October of, uh, of, of 2020. And then the goal was to go start a rental company. Yep. But starting a rental company, it's very capital intensive. You need, yeah. you just need money to do it. Yeah. Um, so you started initially brokering equipment. Yep. And we're still doing that. And you're still doing that. Yep. And your company is Advanced Track. Yep. Advanced Track Equipment. So you've been brokering for a year now. You're still doing it. But recently, you just purchased a 259. A 259 D3. 259 D three. Yep. Not high not high flow. Uh um, not high flow. And so I, I got that I, high flow. I don't need I, it, but I have it.
0: And I still probably paid more than you did because um, you know, you bought yours last year and I bought mine. We talked know, about it. You definitely <laughs> paid more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we bought that. Um we just bought a uh a cat three oh eight. Um
1: oh you and, got a three oh eight too. Yep. Oh.
0: Yeah, take delivery of that next week. Wow. I was supposed to take delivery of it this week, but some guy asked me to be on his podcast. So here I am. Sorry man. That's all
1: right. <laughs> well, he he asked you, Alex. I, asked know. You. That's I didn't what I'm even saying you're yeah. coming. Yeah, yeah. I saw this on the calendar. Well, it was like a day or two ago. I'm like, "No shit. Brian's <laughs> coming here. That's pretty cool." Or no, I saw it was on your your story. You're like, "I'm yeah, I'm driving across the country and making a stop in Nashville." I'm like, "Holy shit. Brian's coming to Nashville. Great. I'll be able yeah. to see him." And you're coming to Nashville for the podcast. I didn't yeah. even know that. He, to be fair, you weren't
0: driving this towards this direction of the country just for the podcast. No. No, I got to go uh yeah, so not to go down the you-can't-find-anything-anywhere rabbit hole, but you can't find anything-anywhere <laughs> oh, yeah. rabbit hole. Yeah, it's, it's a thing. So, yeah, uh, bought a trailer in Indiana because I couldn't find one in Texas. Um, so driving to Indiana, and this was like 40 miles out of the way, so I figured I'd rather yeah. swing in here and see all and see the new – I haven't seen the place since June, so it's uh, looking awesome.
1: <laughs> Polished it up a little bit, mopped the floor, and uh... – Added a few things here or there. I yeah, appreciate you doing that for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> Just um, for you. Yeah. So,
1: so you're you're starting a rental company from the ground up. Yep. General Rental and General is General Rental is going to... normal gonna, size, equi- like yeah, smaller. We're going to compete with the you know the
0: United Rentals and yeah, um, you know all the cat rental stores, those types of those types of
1: uh, rental company. The crazy thing is on rental, is that you'd think the market is quite saturated but Caterpillar just came out with these directives to all their dealers right now and you meet with any Cat dealer, any Cat dealer, top priority expand the rental business. And they've they've they're not expanding it. They've basically said you need to go double your rental business. Caterpillar sees that opportunity that it's out there. The market is growing dramatically right now. So to the untrained eye, it's like it looks pretty saturated to me, man. You have all these Cat rental stores like in your your neck of the woods is what Texas first, yeah. You've owned by Holt, yeah. Owned by Holt, and then you have United, and then you have Sunbelt, and then you H yeah. and and E. Then you have the independents, right? The, and then the independents, yeah. Small privately held businesses. So there's some powerhouse company, and some of these are public companies, like United Rentals, is a yeah. publicly traded company. So right. the amount of cash they have at hand is significant, right? Um, but and and so you'd think like pfft, that's oh, I don't know, man. But the market is growing at such an enormous rate that there's a big opportunity there at the same time. Yep, absolutely. And all of these rental companies, and I guess I'll let you explain it. You can probably explain it better than I can, but they're approaching it in a very traditional manner. They're catering to the traditional customer in the traditional way. And rather than trying to go kick the shit out of United Rentals, because that's insane, you're trying to do it in a just more intelligent Not more intelligent, but just a different way of doing business. Yeah, just completely different is really what it is. We want to infuse technology
0: and give people an opportunity to do things, um, you know, without, uh, I guess, through an e-commerce portal where you're not having to. And it's not, you know, I've had a lot of people that have said, well, you're going to be ditching the traditional relationships and all that. And and that's what a lot of people like. And I Mm -hmm. appreciate that. And Mm -hmm. I like that, too. But not everyone does business that way. And there's a lot of younger people who are now in these equipment manager or uh, <clears throat> coordinator positions, et cetera, that are doing, you know, they're the ones dialing up and calling different places to go rent, a, you know, a 308. And if they can do that online and it's a one-day or two-day rental and they want to punch in their credit card, why not allow them to do that? So that's I, what we're doing.
1: It's, it's common sense to me. And I think the whole... <laughs> I've been up against this from the, the whole mentality of it's just, it's relationship business and you can't go online. It's, it's a very flawed, it's very flawed logic, very flawed logic. And if I were a salesman, I'd be like, okay, good relationships, important will always be important, but also technology is not going away. No, I need to leverage this. And if I can add the relationship component and the technology component together, then that's a very, very formidable product. I can go offer the marketplace. But it's just a lot of these, it's, it's a lot of the old school mentality of really hanging on to that relationship, which is important. But I told Thompson this, it's like, guys, I would have just bought the skits here online. I didn't need to talk to you guys. I didn't need to fill out these paper forms. Like I could have just, I would have just bought it online. If I would have just, I could have just gone down the list, selected my options, order, tell me when it'll be here. I'm going to have a relationship with you guys. Like the guy that helped me out in particular, Darren, kick-ass guy. I call him up, he solves my problems, but I'm going to call him when I have a problem. I don't need that traditional salesman relationship. I need the relationship where they help me if I have a problem, but otherwise there's a lot going on. I can just do all this online. And
0: I sat on the other side of that table, right? When I was working for a contractor and what I always saw when a sales guy showed up was everyone in the, everyone in the building would roll their eyes, right? It's like, oh, great. Here I came with go. a bunch of donuts. It's like, yeah, fucked. they're bringing us donuts. I don't which, want donuts.
1: Get out of here. <laughs> yeah,
0: and 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 some people do, some, right? Oh, and some, some people, people yeah. want, um, and and they still want that treatment, right? They want to be taken to lunch. They want that treatment, and and there's just another component of the market that wants to do it differently too, mm-hmm.
1: and so we're going to offer them that opportunity, which I think is very very clever. I would I would I would for sure rent equipment online. Without a doubt in my mind. And we were just talking about this before we got on the podcast. The reason why I do business with National Rental Car is because I don't have to talk to anybody, which is awesome. I show up. It's like, I've I've been on a plane for eight hours, man. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to explain what I do for business and why I'm in town and how my day's going. Like, you know how my day's going. I just got off a fucking airplane. (laughs) I like... I'm at the airport, like you, you, you know, why are we talking right now? Um, And you just get in your car, show them your license at the gate off. Yeah. It's all on your phone. They send you an emailed receipt when you're, when you check it back in, you don't have to talk to people and it's awesome.
0: And to me, that's where the equipment rental component can be, you know, we can get more like that. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't, I think it's going to be a lot more challenging when it comes to bigger equipment because someone who's paying, you know, $3,000, $4,000, $5,000 a week for a piece of equipment or, you know, $18,000 a month for a piece of equipment, they're probably not going to go throw that on their Amex. But the general rental, you can, right? If you're talking about something that rents for $200 or $250 a day, um, or, you know, even small tools that rent for less than those numbers, right? It's someone might say, hey, I only need this for a couple of days. I'm going to, you know, put a couple of days on here and Throw it on my credit card. Here's where I need it delivered
1: and you're off to the races. Well, but then even with the bigger equipment, you can go to something like ACH or whatever it is. Yeah. I still think the same principles apply. It's like a Dylan Stevens, a Heath Hanna. Yeah. These younger guys that are, you know, they're in their thirties, they get it and they'll probably do business like this. Yeah, I, I think Dylan Stevens would rent a 374 on the internet. He probably would right now. Yeah. I mean, and then, but but the relationship side comes in when, hey, it's broken. Can yeah. You, can you fix it? Absolutely. Okay, I don't want to fill out a form to tell you it's broken. I just want to call someone, you fix my problem. Yep. But if I don't have any problems, we're good to go. Yep. Yeah, and I think, you know, again, it's just kind of the
0: infusion of technology in an industry where there hasn't really been a lot. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, again, that's kind of what we're trying to solve. And the other thing we want to do is we want to be transparent with our customers. So... Um, you know, a lot of companies don't want to share like how much they utilize the piece of equipment until after they've turned it in and they mm-hmm. get the bill and they're like, man, I had this thing three months and I put a hundred hours on it. Um, you know, I want to be, I want to help the folks that are, that are doing business with us. Yeah. Right. And it's not fair for me to just sit back and be like, Hey, well, you had it. It's on rent. Right. Um, but now, if I it's hear in their that, position. I hear it's that in all position. the time. Oh, I
1: know. It, yeah. it, and it drives me nuts. Yeah. Uh, you know what? A company that does this really well is Slack. If you don't use a seat that you're paying for, they send you an email saying you didn't credit use back. two seats and they give you a credit back. Yep. I will do business with Slack. But, you know, as as long as I can for that one reason, yeah. it's because I don't feel like I'm getting screwed. Yep, exactly. They're not screwing me. And
0: and that's the exact approach that we want to take is say, hey, you know, you had it for this long. It uh, We've got to chart exactly how that looks, right? Because yeah, yeah. if it's in your possession and you're missing rentals and all that kind of yeah. stuff. But if... I'm sending you a utilization report at the end of every week and you're seeing that you know you've got a skid steer from us and you're only running it 20 hours out of the 40 that you're allotted. Maybe you make a call and say, hey, we're not you know, I don't need this, you know, I don't need this until next week or at least I'm mm-hmm. sharing the information with you so that you yeah. can make the decision for your business of what makes sense for you.
1: Well, and a lot of times, uh, like the owner or whoever that is, you'll have a, a foreman or super. Keeping that equipment around. Oh yeah, that's that's notorious. Notorious thing that happens in this industry is people hoard equipment because it's like, well, but what if I what if I need that skid steer? Yeah. And it's like, dude, you haven't used it in two. We weeks. We got a job coming up though, and we might need it for that. Yeah, right? yeah. So yeah. let's do that. And so,
0: yeah. Now it is different because of the the availability of things, right? If you if you have uh, like let's say seven forty 740 or seven forty five articulated dump trucks mm-hmm. in Texas. And you turn them in, in today. Yeah, good luck getting them back. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So there is there is some of that. But again, if you're the contractor and you have the information and you make that decision that, hey, I I understand that you know you're trying to do right by me and tell me that I'm not utilizing, but I've got to keep these because I do have another job and I am going to use them. And if I turn them in, I know that you're going to run them to someone else. Right. Mm-hmm. Then that's a business decision that they get
1: to make, not that the rental company is making for them, if you will. It's pretty slick. Well, and you're you're betting on the fact too that a lot of companies are better off. There's an educational component to what you need to pull off here. Is your sales process is really going to be an education of yep. for these companies because everybody thinks I need to go out to start a con- construction company. I need to go buy a piece of equipment, and that's just not the case anymore, at all. Yeah, um, and that's why Caterpillar is doubling down on rental because they're seeing the market head in that direction too, where. A lot of times contractors are much better off renting than they are buying a a lot,
0: a lot of times. And I think over the last year, we've done a lot of consulting work and we've worked through total cost of ownership and a bunch of other stuff with different contractors. And that's what I've seen too, right? Is when you can't just look at a piece of equipment from the lease payment or the, or or the finance payment that you're making every month, right? Because you're only taking one component, you're really only accounting for the acquisition cost, yeah. right, and the interest associated with it. Yeah. You're not thinking about the guy who you're paying probably eighty to hundred thousand dollars a year, who's driving a hundred and fifty thousand dollars service truck with, you know, thirty thousand dollars worth of tools on it, and the parts management that goes into that, and the work order management, and blah 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 blah. Right. Mm-hmm. So all of those things add up, and you've really got to be able to understand those the the two how the two correlate right cuz some of that you're going to you're not going to be able to completely shift away from in the rental side right if you're damaging equipment or or those types of things but yeah. um you know the maintenance the preventative maintenance that now that becomes a, a a liability of the rental company then that you know it starts to add up is i guess the point and Big if time. you don't if you don't know those actual <clears throat> numbers you know you're kind of going into it blind yeah. which is really interesting I think one of the things that um, that I've seen is just you know you see these contractors especially the small to mid-sized guys that don't have you know they don't have someone who has their certified equipment management manager, uh, manager um, certificate um, and so they're and not that that's the only thing but they've they don't have a professional equipment manager if you will right they're kind of just doing it themselves um, and what's interesting to me is Equipment costs are a huge component of a contractor's income mm-hmm. statement, right? Yeah. And they directly affect the bottom line. You save that money on your equipment costs that are directly affects the bottom line. Um, and it's interesting the fact that a lot of contractors just, you know, I, we talked about this earlier, but the equipment side of things can be an ego. It's not always, but it can be an ego thing. Oh, it plays a big big role. It does. And you know, it's like, well, I'm the only guy who's got this many 657s or I'm the only guy who has a 6015 in my area or whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. So I can appreciate that mentality, but if those things don't pencil out, that's a poor business decision. Right. So, um, and it's not just about having the, you know, the lawn ornament out there.
1: So (laughs) it's, it is, it's just, it's funny how much ego plays in the whole equipment world. Yeah. It's, it really gets in the way. And and you said they don't have someone managing their fleet. A lot of these guys don't have someone even managing their business. Yeah. Like they think they can just operate a business. And a lot of these guys, they get into business, they start a construction company because there's a low barrier to entry at first. And they're really good at building stuff, but they're not that good at operating a business and looking at it from a really savvy position, which is where like Randy Blunt, He's done very well, and which is why Blunt Contracting has done very, very well, because he's a very savvy businessman and very good at numbers. And he makes his equipment decisions based on what the numbers say, yep. not what he wants them to say. What is really cool about equipment management, though, is that there are
0: several different ways to do it. And there you can be successful as long as you stick to the program that you want to run, yeah. right? Like Bemis is a an example
1: of that right i mean they've got
0: scrapers with 40 50000 frame hours they said on them.
1: some of them have 90000 frame yeah. hours <laughs> like
0: that's insane right 90, most people 000. would hear that and be like that's the craziest thing ever but when you have someone who understands the equipment understands the rebuild cost understands the uh intervals in which you service etc cetera, etc cetera, right um you can put that to work and be
1: very successful with your business that way, Great. right? Yeah, well, and this is why these assholes online, they'll see Bemis, these be 631s, which aren't the biggest scraper out there. Yeah, they're bigger they're scrapers. Oh. <laughs> and they'll be like, well, you could you could move that dirt a lot faster, 657s. It's like, dude, you are demonstrating how dumb you are right now by saying that. Because yes, you're completely right. They could It could be moved faster than 657s, but... Do you know how much more expensive 657s are to, yep. to purchase and then to maintain? And no, they don't have one engine. They have two engines. Yep. And now you're dealing with emissions bullshit. And now you have to transport them. Transporting a 57 is a hell of a lot more difficult than a than a 31. Yep. And now you have to keep that thing. it's It's way hungrier than a 31 is. So now you have to keep way more dirt in front of it. And now you have to chase lower margin work. It's just they don't think about the economics of it and a, like a company like Bemis, let me tell you they have it dialed in dialed in they and make a, good money and and i guess that is the point that i'm trying to make too
0: right is that it's not there's not a a single equipment management wand that it's like hey here's no. what you do right i i've i grew up around cat equipment i love cat equipment i it's no offense to any of the other manufacturers that exist out there. It's just the brand loyalty that I've had, you know, since I was little, right? Um, and I love cat equipment. And there's guys that run cat. There's guys that run deer. There's guys that have mixed fleets. And they do a very good job of running fleets that have multiple manufacturers in it, right? Yeah. It doesn't work for me because it's not what, you know, it's not my business model, if you will. But for, you know, other folks, it does work. And I think that's the... That's the uh, Something that kind of gets lost in translation, I think a lot, right? Is you get people that are like, "Oh, well, you have to do it this way or that way or whatever," and you know, there's been books written on equipment economics, and they tell you the exact same thing, right? Mm-hmm. There's you really have to decide what your model going to be, right? If you don't want to have a fleet department and you don't want to manage all of the BS that goes along with it, yeah, lease equipment, right, um, and build in repair and maintenance contracts with those, mm-hmm. right. Um, and Cat and Komatsu and Deer and all the manufacturers have really good information when it comes to those things, so you can project those costs out too. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely think that there's there's two sides to that, right? It's definitely not just a one size or one answer, uh, you know,
1: to that problem. No, it's it's a it's well, it's a spectrum. There's not even two sides. I no. mean, there's a lot of different ways you can do it, um, and it, it really the most successful companies are the most disciplined. And so, like you said, they, they pick a plan and, and they, they stick it. to the plan. They don't get distracted by the next shiny thing or this project that's a little, mm, this is not what we, they, they stick to what they're good at. And, yep. and they can make, you can make a ton of money as a contractor if you stick to what you're good at. And yeah, like Mixed Fleet, Caterpillar, good example. Some contractors, they just love Caterpillar because it's like, they're good to me. They take care of, like, the, it just checks out. Like Like Randy, Blunt, Empire. Empire, stupid dominant dealership, stupid dominant. Just have service agreements with the dealer and let them take care of everything, which is what they do. And it checks out. It checks out. And then other contractors are just like, shoot, I mean, all four, Komatsu, Volvo, Deer, Cat, they're all good dealers. And I'm just more comfortable as a business owner spreading out my... spreading out my eggs into different baskets because I don't like it when someone has leverage over me. Co- that's cool too, man. That's super cool. Yep. And it it, it depends on where you're at geographically. Like totally I'm saying, depends. Like,
0: totally depends because really in depends. certain areas you have one dealer who's stronger than the next. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. There's some areas where you have four really good dealers and there's some areas where one dealer kicks the shit out of everybody else. Yep. <laughs> And then, yeah, you're operating in different regions, and it's it's a very complex problem. It is. It definitely is. And I think, you know,
0: the the companies who have multiple locations across multiple states, you know, working in different regions and soil conditions, et cetera, you know, they really get – they really have to be on their game when it comes to equipment management because what works in California doesn't work in Texas, and what works in Texas doesn't work in Tennessee, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you, you – I think discipline is the key though. You, once you pick that plan, you got to stick with it. You got to see it through. And, and then you make adjustments once you see that through, right? If it, if if you see that it's not working, then obviously change it. Right. Um, but the, I think you're absolutely correct that the folks who are disciplined in the way they manage their equipment, whether that's running a scraper with 90,000 frame hours or getting a new three thirty six at the end of every three years, mm-hmm. you know, and
1: they just deliver it to you yeah. um, and paint it blunt gray for you. And, yeah go for it and you have to worry about a break-in or anything like that it's you know has two thousand hours on it you go um what's what's uh like what's a stupid thing you see contractors do a lot when it comes to equipment we've covered a lot of it but is there something that just drives you nuts
0: i think the thing that drives me nuts is uh auction purchases and it's not that you can't make good auction purchases Mm -hmm. because they're especially right now there's Auction companies are buying low-hour equipment to put in their auctions because they're bringing such good numbers. Right, mm-hmm. so um, you can make good buys. It's the ones where you're like, "I got a smoking deal on this thing," and it's like, "Well, why did you? Why is a machine in the auction in the first place?" Right, um, and it, it is. There's there's a few different ways to look at that. Right, some contractors put their equipment in an auction because they want. They want the liquidation component, right? Mm -hmm. They want that money quickly. They don't want to sit on it for six months while they market it, et cetera, right? Totally get that. Um, But I think purchasing out of the auction, you just have to really be careful um, because you just don't know what you're getting. And especially with, um, you know, limited inspections now. And I know Richie's going back to um, in-person auctions next year, so that'll be good. Um, But... I see a lot of contractors that make purchases. They think they got a smoking deal, and then they're dropping thousands of dollars into this piece of equipment or this truck, um, you know. And it's like, well, now what? Did yeah. it really pan out for you? Could yeah. you have gone and bought a lightly used piece of equipment and been in a much better position with that piece of equipment?
1: Yeah. So yeah, they're, they're so fixated on the the good deal that they got. Yeah, exactly. They, you forget about the whole operating cost.
0: And I think what I said earlier too, you know, you. I see a lot of contractors who you have this huge expense and, you know, you talk about people and materials and all these different things, but it's like equipment. In a lot of cases, people just have this like blank checkbook. Like it's, Hey, this is what it costs. You know, it costs this much to buy a three thirty six. That's what we got to pay for it. Right. Um, and to me, I think, I, I guess if I were a contractor, I'd be trying to manage that as best I can to get, to yeah. get that, you know, get that number down. Cause it is, it's a, <clears throat> it's truly, yeah even though it can be viewed as another revenue center for a contractor, it truly is a cost center, right? It it is something that it supports the operation, right? You can't do what you do without it, but, um, you can, you know, charge yourself back through internal rates, et cetera, and recapture some of those expenses. Yeah. Where I was going with the, with the cost center though, is how do you manage cost centers, right? You get them, you get that cost down as much as you can, right? You reduce that cost. So to me, that's where I see, um, and it's not every contractor, like I said, con- there's a lot of guys that have it completely dialed in. And there's a lot of guys that are making good strides towards getting it dialed in. So um, that's not, I'm not speaking in generalities that you know every contractor sucks at that, um, but I've seen it a few different times. And um, honestly, on the consulting side of the business, it's been really it's been a lot of fun working through those problems and helping people realize that hey, here's where we can save some cash, and here's a different approach to doing it. So, well,
1: it's always been frustrating to me how like a contractor will write a check half a million dollar check for a dozer tomorrow, yeah. I even think twice about it. <laughs> yeah, and then I'll ask for a fraction of that to go completely change their business. And it's just like, nah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know about that, man. It's just, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's been a weird thing to overcome because they, contractors are very comfortable with dealing intangible assets. I, I was going to say, I think, it, in my opinion,
0: the sale and having done business with you um, on that side of things, right? I think that is the hardest part of the sale for you, yeah. right? Is, it, it's an asset that isn't necessarily tangible Mm -hmm. now the proof is in the pudding right i mean the things that you've done for other companies is huge right um but that is a that is a component of it that's not necessarily tangible even from the consulting side for me i've had a couple of conversations with different contractors that you you know i feel like hey they really want to make a change this is going to be great and then they're like eh I don't think we want to pay you to do this.
1: Yeah. So you're like, hmm,
0: "Okay, never mind."
1: <laughs> okay. Well, um and it, uh, it's yeah, it's just it's frustrating to me. And and that's why I think contractors don't invest in their people. They say they do, they very rarely do. And I think it's it's the same thing. It's people don't show up on a balance sheet, and it's not as easy as a bulldozer is. And yep. they're used to just dealing in very easy tangible things anything that's intangible, software, investing in people, marketing, whatever it is, they're just like, that's ah, just witchcraft. I don't believe in it. But shoot, that's a big part of business going forward. And if yep. you're not doing that stuff, especially in this industry, you're going to be screwed. And I, yeah, I was going
0: to say, I think this, that's applicable to every industry, right? Yeah. You see a lot of different industries where businesses are getting left behind because they won't adapt. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that's, you know, We can't do that, right? And we especially can't do it in construction. We're seeing less and less people walk through the doors of places and, you know, looking for jobs, et cetera. Um, And, you know, when I was, I guess, when I was in college, everyone that I was in college with was super excited about construction. So I kind of had this, like, blurred vision. But then I had other people that were studying civil engineering, mechanical engineering, you know, history, English, whatever, right? And they looked at me like, you want to go work on construction projects outside? Like, they just they didn't, they didn't see the value in it. Right. Um, and so I think changing that perspective is huge. And I think I really believe in the build With mission, what you guys are doing. I think you guys are leading the charge into that, into that space and helping expose honestly, how awesome this industry really is. Um, and I've been around it for a long time, so I've, I know it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I knew I was on a granite job site um, I was a sophomore. I just got my license and I was watching. I was actually delivering parts because one of our 623s was broke down and I was delivering parts to the mechanic. And I was just watching these scrapers do laps. And in the second I saw that, I was like, I know what I want to do. It's right. It's scrapers. Just, they're mesmerizing. Yeah. I don't know what it is about it, but man. And it's, uh, I was just talking to my brother the other day and we were talking about rentals and, and how it's a challenging business. And, you know, it's, uh, it can be something that, you really, it can be hard. There's days that are extremely difficult, you know. Um, but it's it's intoxicating all at the same time mm-hmm. because it is. It's a really really fun to be able to see your equipment helping contractors build infrastructure, build homes, build um, you know hospitals, whatever it might be. Yeah. And uh, I think that's that's pretty darn cool.
1: I agree. Well, I'm excited to see where uh, Advanced Track goes, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, this is like this is like the genesis right here. Yeah, You've been going for a year, but now you're, yeah, it's, you're really in the thick of things now. It's funny because I feel like we're now, like
0: we, we started the business last year, not, uh, not that it wasn't real, but it didn't feel like it feels now. And I think now we have a, a big loan <laughs> that we have to pay, so it'll feel really uh, real when we have to uh, make that first stroke. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it's it's kind of. It's bootstrapping all over again, you know, borrowing a friend's truck to go pick up a trailer and go pick up a an excavator that I found on Facebook Marketplace because you can't call your cat dealer and get one right
1: now. No. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh it's a wild ride, no doubt. Cool. Well, I'm excited to see where it goes and appreciate you coming coming to Nashville, Tennessee for a podcast. Yeah. Appreciate you having me. All right, man. Well, I think that's a Dirt Talk podcast. Crushed awesome. it. Awesome. That was easy, huh? Yeah, that was easy.